Hello and welcome to Nightlight. For those of you who have listened to our earlier teachings, you'll have no doubt heard a good deal about the three barriers that keep us from coming into personal wholeness. They are the failure to forgive others, the failure to receive forgiveness, which includes, of course, the failure to believe in the love and grace of God towards you. And the last one, the failure to come into healthy self-acceptance. We found over and over in those early days that folks got the first two pretty clearly. But that third one, failure to come into self-acceptance, often tripped people up. As a result, we did several entire weekend conferences just on the meaning of self-acceptance. We have at least two of those conferences available in our CD catalog, if not more. The struggle, first, to understand what self-acceptance really means, is then followed by the greater struggle to work through the barriers and misunderstandings and early wounds, or sometimes adult wounds, that hinder being a person with a secure, healthy attitude toward themselves. The more religious of a background a person has, it seems like, the more difficult this struggle is because there are lots of misunderstandings about what it means to love yourself. Isn't that the opposite of what the Bible teaches, people say? We're not supposed to love ourselves. We're supposed to crucify ourselves, some would say. We spend a lot of time trying to help them understand that first, you cannot crucify yourself. Just picture that. How would you get it done? (laughs) All joking aside, what they were referring to as self-crucifixion was actually a misquoted statement from Galatians chapter 2 where Paul says, we are crucified already. We are, we've been crucified with Christ. In other words, we died in him. Whatever happens to Jesus happens to us because we are in him. Now that kind of language is not easy for modern thinkers who are poorly educated in symbols and meaning of covenant to understand. I don't want to cover that teaching here in detail because, as as I've said, we've covered it extensively in other places. But um, I'm, I'm addressing it again because now there seems to be the opposite problem. Previously, the religious idea of dying to self was badly overloaded with legalism and anti-life concepts. Anything life-giving, joyful, adventurous, romantic, or just plain fun was seen as evil or worldly-minded. It reeked of the kind of self-righteous small-mindedness of the Pharisees who called Jesus a drunkard and a glutton and one who kept company with, quote, sinners. Jesus, thankfully, seemed to deserve that title because he loved to eat and drink and spend time with sinners. Somehow, over the years, the legalists had replaced the heart of the Torah with a legalistic system of rule-keeping, and just in case you might break a real rule, they added many, many extra rules called fence laws to make sure you kept all the rules. Every Christian group I've ever been a part of has such extra rules in their own circle. This is death, not life. And it does not produce goodness, but ends up destroying goodness. This is why there can be so much truly horrible behavior among otherwise real Christians. A fear-driven, rule-oriented, shame-based system of appeasing an angry God by towing the line and making sure all around you are doing the same is what, sadly, many, many think Christianity is. All error produces an equal opposite error. The sad joke about preacher's kids being especially bad comes to mind. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, that the strength of sin is the law. The more laws given, the more the sinful nature manifests. That doesn't mean the law is wrong. It just shows what's, go- what's going on inside of us. 
But I've, I've, I've found the worst kind of sexual sins, for instance, hidden among the hyper-legalistic denominations where any discussion of human sexuality, even from Scripture, was considered dirty, taboo subject. The slingshot response to legalism then, of course, is license. Soon, in reaction against a constant drumbeat against sin and about sin and the need for repentance, comes a totally opposite message. Now, let me be clear. Both ends of this are wrong and will produce wrong results. Both will increase sin, not deliver us from it. Whether it is the constant demand to repent, 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 with no sign of life ever offered, or the rejection of the very concept of sin and a flesh-centered message that Jesus came to make us happy, either one of those errors, errors produces the same result, ongoing sinful disintegration that eventually produces death. To illustrate both sides of this, let me offer two true stories. A man came to me years ago who had come to Christ from a very broken background of drugs, immorality, alcohol, you know, the usual baggage. He had been a part of his home church for nearly a decade. You would think by this time he would have had a good, solid foundation and would be making some progress in his spiritual maturity, but the smell of nicotine was unmistakable on him, and he was a nervous wreck. But watching him made me want to start smoking or do something. He, he was so nervous and so agitated. His jitter, jitteriness made me jittery. He explained to me his terrible trouble, that he must not be a real Christian because if he was, he would be a better man. But he had gone to the altar week in and week out seeking deliverance, as he referred to it. But he was still a sinner because he still smoked. His well-meaning and truly caring altar counselors would pray with him and even cry with him. But would end up telling him he simply had not repented enough yet. This would send him into a downward spiral of self-examination that was dark, which of course always produced a crop of evidence still within him that he was still a great sinner because you look down in the dark and all you're going to see is dark. As he stared inside, what did he find? Well, the same thing any of us will find if we start staring down inside of ourselves. Carnal appetites, anger, pride, lust, you know the usual suspects. We all know them, if we're honest. But with no understanding of the meaning of the cross and our placement in Christ, all he was ever left with was the confirmation that, sure enough, his old sinful nature was all there really was in him, and he could, uh, he could not ever truly repent enough. If he would just repent enough, he'd be set free. Now, you know I believe in repentance, but what good is repentance if you never can get to the other side of it? If it's all just repent, repent, repent. You know, he would be set free if, uh, in the eyes of those imperfect folks who are trying to help him, uh, whose sins are not as easily spotted as nicotine. You know, he can't smell their sins necessarily. But the, the, the fact is, this system, this, this strange legalistic system he was part of, had decided to make uh, nicotine a, a measuring stick of whether he was really a Christian or not. You ever notice this, this kind of group never makes gluttony a measuring stick. Well, that's getting too close to my own sin, so better get away from that. Uh, well, this kind of legalism, of course, drove him into a downward spiral of inner pain that fully supported his need for a smoke and was on the verge of driving him back into much harder drugs than cigarettes. But then there's the person on the other end Mary spent over an hour dealing with a young lady who had just left her third husband and was barely legally divorced from him before she was pursuing number four. 
with absolutely no sense of responsibility for her own sins, which helped ruin her previous relationships, she tried to explain to Mary that she had, quote, heard from God about this new man and knew that she was to marry him as soon as possible. Now, why would God be so ignorant of reality as to tell her this? Well, of course he didn't. Because God's main goal in her life is not to make her happy. But this was not offered in the form of a question. This is what she said to Mary. She said, God wants me to be happy. She didn't say it as a question. This is just a declaration of her theology. No, she had heard that from enough pulpits and enough self-help programs passed off as the gospel that she was convinced that God wanted her to be happy no matter what as she was, uh, she, she was more confident of that as she was uh, of the incarnation or the cross or the resurrection. To try to explain to her that there were obviously broken places in her soul that caused her to continue to recreate the same scenarios over and over, producing sin, which produced heartache, which produced brokenness, which is what sin always does. It wasn't even admissible to her thinking. She left simply aiming to recreate the same tragedy again and feeling justified in it with various scriptures she had woven together about abundant life and joy being full and forgetting what is behind. She had no conception of the real meaning of those verses or the real gospel. She thought forgiveness covers her past, grace covers her present, and licentiousness paves the way for her future. Her guide was her own inner sense of what made her feel good. She actually referred to that several times in the conversation as her inner guiding light. Her own subjective fleshly appetites, which provided her with any temporary happening that would, for the moment, make her feel happy, was her guiding light. Now, we know that, with a few sad exceptions, most pastors do not overtly teach smokers that they are not Christians because they're still smoking. Still, there is an atmosphere, a prevailing culture among such Christians that ends up communicating that error even though it's not preached. In the same way, most pastors don't stand up and teach that the gospel means that you are forgiven no matter what and that grace covers you no matter what in the sense of offering you license to just go on and continue to sin and God just goes on and continues to provide for that sin. I mean, nobody preaches that, not, not legitimate ministries. Again, with only a few sad exceptions... It's safe to say that no pastor would overtly teach that, but the same holds true for this opposite side of the ditch. Even if it's not overtly taught that way, if the real gospel is not taught and all that is offered is a message that you are God's focus and he wants you to be happy, the result will be that this serial divorcee lady or any number of versions of her in any number of sad scenarios uh, You are the center of God's focus. Your personal happiness is the very reason Jesus came and suffered so that you could uh, enjoy all the different aspects of your life regardless of your ongoing willful embrace of your old life. This is not the gospel. It's not good news to be told Jesus died to save you for your sin. That would not be good news to anybody who understands the destructive nature of sin. Jesus came to save us from our sins, not in our sins, not for our sins, but from our sins. I know I'm insulting the intelligence of most of my audience here. You all know this for heaven's sakes. But I'm dealing with the fallout of a change in the overall understanding of the gospel that has become the norm in Christian circles in much of American Christianity The good news is Jesus has made a way by the power of his cross and his resurrection to both forgive us no matter what, 
but also deliver us from all sin. The good news is that he who has begun this good work in you will bring it to completion, that he will perfect that which pertains to you, that he is the author and the finisher of our faith, that though it does not yet appear what we shall be, we know that one day we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day, Though our present light affliction seems difficult at the time, it is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. So since we are risen with Christ, we set our imagination and affections and mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and not on the things of the earth. For we are dead And our life is hid with Christ in God. So Paul goes on to say there in that verse that I'm just quoting from Colossians chapter 3, since this is true, you are to begin to deprive of power those bodily appetites that drive you toward the opposite of this high life. Then he lists those things which we won't take time to list here. You all know what they are because we're all battling them in some form. I hope we are battling them anyway. Are we covered by and kept by grace? Yes, no doubt. And what does grace do? Well, Titus chapter 2 says grace teaches us. What does it teach us? To deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's what grace teaches us to do. He goes on to explain in verse 14 of that same chapter of Titus 2, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself his own special people who are eager to do what is good. I don't blame anybody for wanting to run as far and as fast as possible in the opposite direction from any kind of preaching that is focused constantly on sin, 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 and telling people to repent, 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 with no light ever at the end of that long, dark tunnel of shame, self-incrimination, and blame. It always brings to mind the angry, fire-breathing image of the Wizard of Oz who kept demanding another and another and then another proof of goodwill even finally to bringing the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. And even that was not enough. There's no blame on anybody for wanting to get away from such as that. But to run in the opposite direction that seeks to not only excuse sin, but somehow make it normal is just as destructive, worse, because it dresses up death in party clothes and covers the smell of corruption with cheap perfume. Sin produces death. The gospel is the wonderful news that sin can be forgiven and that we can be set free not only of its penalty but also of its power. And at the return of the Lord we will even be set free from its very presence forever. But in between the release from the penalty and the eventual deliverance from the presence of sin In in between those two, there's this ongoing work of grace in us that works to deliver us from sin's power. That work will not be completed in this lifetime, but if we truly belong to Jesus, the proof that we belong to him is that we long to obey him and become more like him. Now, where that is absent, there's good reason to wonder if you know him and Again, I know that you all know that. This is not deep theology. It's really simple. I don't mean the process of being delivered from the power of sin is simple. It's a little more complicated. It takes a lifetime and then some. But the simple fact of this as the necessary meaning of the gospel, that part is simple. As C.S. Lewis and Oswald Chambers and A.W. Tozer and many, many other wise elders before us has said, There's no part of heaven with a little bit of hell left in it. And there's no part of hell in me that will be allowed to enter heaven. 
He will purge from me all that is not part of who and what he means for me to be. That's great news. But it is good news in the same way that it would be good news to find that after a terrible debilitating accident, which costs you your mobility and agility, you learn that the doctor has not only saved your life, but can eventually restore you fully to your mobility. In between the life-saving event and the total restoration of mobility, there are some demanding therapies you must be willing to cooperate with. This is not a picture of work salvation. It's not working for your salvation. It's working out your salvation as we addressed previously. For your salvation is not just saving you out from hell. It's saving hell out of you. And that still has... That, that hell still has operative access in, in making your life and the lives of those you love around you a hell. Anybody, anybody who's honest knows that. And uh, I, don't, I don't like giving examples of my own stuff, uh, but I can tell you the saddest times in my life have been after I, I was walking with the Lord for a long time and expected maybe uh, better of myself to find patterns of behavior in me that were still strongly present that were debilitating and destructive and disintegrating not only of me, but of my relationships. That That's a form of hell. Left to itself, it would produce hell. I don't think I have to prove to any listening that there is such hell in us sometimes. Do I? In our pain-free moments, we compromise with evil that is causing us and others such sorrow whenever it gets activated. Then when it's activated, in whatever form you want to describe, it is then that we cry out to God. When we cry out to Him, uh, what motivates us to cry out to Him tells us a little bit about where we are with him. If we behave like the irresponsible medical patient who refuses to take his doctor's guidance and only makes necessary changes for his health's sake uh, when he's in a, a crisis, kind of guy who just wants a pill to make the pain stop but doesn't want to find out what's causing the pain, then then we're in trouble. Uh, a wise patient will say, look, I don't want to stop hurting. I want to get to the bottom of why I'm hurting and correct it. Well, that's a whole, that's a whole different set of circumstances. Now, so much of what I'm saying here, you all already know. I'm aware of that. But I'm having to lay the foundation for something that I do want to get to that maybe we haven't thought through more clearly. And that has to do with the the whole the whole process of dying to self when we say things like yeah i know this is wrong for me to do but god knows my heart he understands my unmet needs he's patient with my weakness on and on the things we say now before i lose you let me say clearly that god does know our heart and he is understanding of uh, of our neediness. And he is patient with our weakness. That's all true. But we have often turned this into a total misinterpretation of Scripture. A favorite one, of course, is Romans chapter 7, where Paul describes the man who does what he doesn't want to do and does not do what he does want to do. And we take that as the simple statement of fact, uh, that that's all there is till heaven. We keep forgetting Romans 7 goes into Romans 8, which is the power of walking in the Spirit and overcoming the, the, the old life. I'm that guy, we say. I'm, I'm the Romans 7 guy. See, I have Scripture to back it up. I'm part holy and part unholy. Or if you're Jungian, I'm, uh, this is my shadow side, overcoming my light side. Or if you listen to Clay and Mary teach on inner healing, you could say, well, I'm just in process and I just haven't arrived in, in, in this particular part of my life yet. See, all of that has some truth 
to it, though the Jungian stuff would need some real corrective. But when such concepts become excuses to just keep doing the same things over and over and keep having the same results over and over, God will have to allow the suffering caused by those patterns to increase. Not because he's punishing us, not because he's angry at us. On the contrary, is so that we will become aware enough of the lies that we have begun to, to allow to take over our life. That we will come to him, pour out our hearts before him, and treat him as if he is able to deliver us, to transform us. I quote these two statements in our previous hour, uh, but I want to revisit them here briefly, where Oswald Chambers says, quote, So how are you ever going to get the life that has no lust, no self-interest, no oversensitivity, a love that is never provoked or that thinks no evil, that is always kind? How how are are we ever going to get there? Well, the obvious answer is that the only way to honestly get there is to honestly, ruthlessly deal with those issues. Not in harsh legalism, which produces failures, or worse, Pharisees, but in coming into the presence of the Lord daily and making his presence your very life source, listening to him and doing what you hear him say. Why don't we do that? Well, again, I want to quote Ed Welch that I quoted in our previous hour together when he says, our strong desires and emotions beg to interpret our world for us. But they do so in ways that do not affect our conscience awareness of how sinful they are. Did you get that? Our strong desires and emotions that rule us, that we all have them. They can be kicked into gear by a photograph or a song or returning to a a place from our past or just in conversation or just from a dream. There's things in us that have seemingly a life of their own that are in opposition to the life of God. But there's so much a part of us, we think of that as just the way we are. The way we're, and the way we're, not only the way we are, but the way we're supposed to be. And yet, the fruit that comes from that supposed normal pattern in your life is always bad. Now Jesus said good fruit can't come from a bad tree and bad fruit can't come from a good tree. If it's producing bad fruit, it's a bad tree. And so uh, Ed Welch goes on to say here, the passions Paul is calling us to kill often do not appear as enemies but as friends even as who we really are. They tell the story of our lives falsely, claiming sinful acts and desires as if they were life-giving, freeing, and fulfilling. Sentimentality uh, disguising itself as real life. This is idolatry. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through about verse 7 or 8. If we refuse to take the promise of God seriously enough, and only apply it to being born again, being forgiven of our sins. But then ignore the entire rest of the scripture that talks about being transformed into his likeness, being set free of sinful patterns that have ruled us all our lives. Then we remain almost as if we're stillborn babies in the kingdom of God. We're born again and we're in the kingdom, but we're not living kingdom lives. We're not alive to God, but we're stunted and stuck. There's a great old book called The Complete Armor of God that says, quote, Are you grieved to recall the religious pageantry you produced for the community while you privately entertain lusts inside the locked dressing rooms of your heart? Donald Blesch wrote these words, Self-hatred, self-deprecation, which includes the secret sins that are produced by self-hatred, is often an excuse for intemperance and laziness. 
When we unduly deprecate ourselves, hate ourselves, by the way, let me just mention, for you to, for you to have self-hatred means that yourself is fully alive for it to be hated. Self, self-hatred is a form of pride, and much of our ongoing battle, uh, struggle with sin, or failure to struggle against sin, comes from self-hatred, because self-hatred, as Dr. Bless just pointed out, makes a way for intemperance and self-indulgence and laziness. Then he goes on to say, when we unduly deprecate ourselves, we retreat from responsibility as people called by God to subdue the earth and herald the coming kingdom of God. We use our failings in order to justify our refusal to avoid the command of God to do battle for his kingdom. God's grace liberates us to do battle with the entrenched powers of sin that are in our society and in ourselves. The Christian response to the problem of sin should neither be fright nor flight, but fight. Now, I don't want to digress here, but I could easily spend more time on this than we have to spend we cannot linger on this subject too long or it will take up too much of our time. But I, I just want to underscore something Dr. Blesh is saying here. When he says that the secret ongoing sin not only contaminates us privately and personally, but also renders us impotent for the greater battle going on around us and in our nation and in our world, those who have fought the battle within will then be equipped by that work to take on the larger battle without. But those who do not deal with their inner struggles will be impotent and useless for the larger battle ahead and may find themselves easily seduced by the very enemy they should be overcoming. And we could again, I said, spend a lot of time on that, but let's keep moving. Another quote from Complete Armor. You must be holy before you can live holy. That means it has to happen in the heart level before it can manifest on the outside. There was a time when sin looked good to you. Unless you change your deep mind, then sin will always appear pleasant. And again, let me interject. The entertainment industry is the very power of the enemy. It's the engine of the enemy to keep that old life alive. If only circumstances keep you from expressing the sin that is in your heart that you're continually hankering after, uh, then you're you're going to be like two lovers who are kept apart by society but who eventually break loose and run toward one another. The lust will lure you back again and again until you learn to hate it as much as you once loved it. Learn to hate it as much as you once loved it. Many of you will know the words to this song. It was written for Against the Night 20 years ago. But I guess of all the songs I've ever written, this is the one that means the most to me. Let me love what you love. Let me feel what you feel. Let me shed what is worthless and hold what is real. Wash my eyes with your tears. Through your eyes let me see till what matters to you is what matters to me. Let me love what you love. Let me hate what you hate. Let me do what's important before it's too late. Let me reach out and grasp what real life is made of. Let me hate what you hate. Let me love what you love. The battle lines drawn between darkness and light, though I'm pulled by what's wrong, How I long for what's right, but my highest intentions have not made me free. Only you, Lord, can liberate me. So I'll draw close to you till this battle is through. Till your holiness rules all that I say and do. Till my deepest affections are like yours above. Till I hate what you hate. Till I love what you love. And how do you learn to hate sin that you once loved? By purposefully, daily, placing yourself in God's presence and asking Him 
to transform you in that very specific area you feel most overcome by. Instead of giving up and walking away from it and saying, I gave it my best and for whatever reason, God didn't deliver me. So, well, it must be a cross I've, I've been given to bear. I remember a guy in college, uh, when I was in college years ago, he said uh, he'd been battling with lust and he finally realized he was never going to win. And uh, uh, he just decided it was a cross he had to bear. And uh, he said the Lord spoke to him in his prayer time and said, well, son, if you had to have a cross, at least you picked out one for yourself that you can enjoy. Put yourself in the presence of God and believe that he will do it. But never think this means some mindless lounging before God with no conscious effort on your part, like getting a suntan. No, it means that you come to him and that he begins to bring up the specifics in you that you've idolized. And he begins to put his finger on them, helping you see them for what they really are, helping you choose him over them. It may be a process, but it should not be a long, drawn-out process. And often, if you begin to think of it as a process, you will find ways to experience it as never occurring. The process should not be long if you are engaged in honest, real, courageous prayer, seriously focusing on the presence of God. Now, there's a word I want you to begin to get used to because I'm probably going to use it a little more than uh, than just this session. But it's the word synergy. What is synergy? Well, synergy is the working together of two separate entities in order to produce a third work that is greater than either of the two entities could have produced on their own. You and God have a synergistic relationship. Now, you might at first rebel against me saying that God could be one of the agencies in a synergistic relationship because he's the almighty God, you, you know, sure. God can do anything that's doable. He cannot produce what is not doable. He, and what I mean is he can't create a square circle. Or he can't create a good evil. He can't create a rock too big for him to pick up. In other words, he can't create nonsense. So when he wants to bring forth sons and daughters to partner with him in the ongoing enterprise of ruling the universe and glorifying himself through that relationship, he cannot treat us like mindless puppets. He has to have a synergistic relationship with us so that we are an element in the activity along with God and that produces a third characteristic which could not have been produced without both of the activities of the previous two partners. God can have what God wants without us unless what God wants requires us to be part of the process then God can't have what God wants, even though he's God. He must give us a separate identity made in his image and likeness, but not a mere extension of himself, or he would just, we would just be puppets. We have to be us in relationship to him. Two cannot enter intimacy unless they are both free not to enter it. That's why he does not just transform us into little perfect puppets when we were first born again. He means for the process to do its necessary work in us so that it can eventually come through us to the rest of the universe. Yes, when you are dealing with your private struggles in your private life, you are in Star Wars training. Don't doubt it. It's that big a deal. It may be coming through mundane, daily, human, grimy, embarrassing stuff that has no glory in it and no nothing you'd want anybody to even see. And yet in that process, God is working for you a, 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 an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, sonship and suffering purges out the mixture in us. Hebrews chapter 2 explains that Jesus himself was equipped to become the captain of our salvation by the things that he suffered in his human form. 
When it says he was made perfect by the things which he suffered, it obviously doesn't mean he was made free of sin. The word here means to be equipped. He was equipped by the things that he suffered in his human identity, the things he experienced, the levels of conflict, uh, which were unknown to him on the human level. And at the end result of that process, he became our great high priest who is touched with the feeling of our deepest and darkest infirmities, touched with every aspect of it, so that no matter who the person is who reads that verse, that he's our great high priest and, and is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, no matter who reads it, they will be touched by the fact of, that he's touched with what hurts them. Now, the word uh, concerning his equip, equipment as great high priest, uh, obviously he knew no sin. He defeated sin, but he knows every detail of your struggle in your body, in your mind, in your relationships. He knows your longings, your fears, your doubts, your disappointments. He's fully present to you in them. So based on that truth alone, we have no excuse to run anywhere but to him daily, hourly, even minute by minute. But we must become fully awake to our need and to his supply and then take action to deal with our need from his supply. If you do this, you will become aware of two things that will begin to change in you immediately. First, you will stop compromising with daily sin, which you have allowed to just become just a normal part of your furniture. You will begin to hate what he hates. You will begin to love what he loves. Things you once held dear, though you might be ashamed for others to know about it, will begin to appear to you as the evil and repulsive thing that they truly are. You will no longer be self-deceived by memories or music or past relationships or sentimentality or the flash of the world system calling to you. You will begin to hate what you once loved and you will begin to love what you once only played like you loved out of religious duty. That will lead to the second major change in you. You will begin to be conscious when you are allowing your, un, your godly boundaries to be overwhelmed with ungodliness, you'll put up strong barriers against anything that would seduce you back. Instead of tolerating temptation till it takes you over, you'll begin to see the danger moving towards you and you will cut it off before it can stir your body or your memories or your anger or whatever it is. This is not living in sin consciousness. Just the opposite. This is living in such a consciousness of Jesus' presence with you that you become ruthless in protecting the unity that you have with him. The end result of this is dying to your old self so that you begin to enter the new life that you have heard about all your Christian life and wondered how come you could never get there. G.K. Chesterton said, quote, no one can live without delight. So one deprived of spiritual joy will turn to carnal pleasure as its weak replacement. Or to say it another way, St. Gregory said, if you, do, if you delight in higher things, you will not delight in lower things. Or to put it more in our vernacular, if you turn from your idols and let them die, God will come in and fill that place with joy that, where you were looking uh, for, for love in all the wrong places. But it must begin with you making that choice and willing to ask him to do in you what you cannot do for yourself. Once we choose to do what we cannot do, we find that we can begin to do it. His grace comes in to uphold us in that action. Now, just a word about redemptive suffering. If Jesus suffered in order to become the captain of our salvation, in order for him to be equipped in his humanity, to be able to minister to us in our humanity, then don't think he did all the suffering so that we don't have to. You know, there's parts of the body of Christ that really teach 
that Jesus bore all suffering so you don't have to suffer. The Bible doesn't support that, but it's just another one of those twisted scripture, twisted doctrines that uh, get get propagated because it's popular and uh, pleasing to our flesh. The old song is still true. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. It's been said before that the cross for me is where my will crosses God's will. Now, either you're walking in a perfection that is unknown to the rest of us, or you've got areas in your life where your will crosses God's will. And forgive me, I don't mean to sound like I'm wagging my finger in your face. We, we just all know these things. I hope we do. Uh, think of this point. If I cling to something for comfort that is not good for me, when I have to give it up, I'm going to suffer. Duh. But if the truth is, is more important to me than living in self-comfort, I will only suffer for as long as it takes for God to replace that false comfort with the real and the true, which will then last forever and never be wrested away from me again. But if I cling to the false, the suffering that comes when it finally fails me is a much greater suffering, more costly and harder to heal. Paul refers to worldly sorrow that brings death or godly sorrow that brings life. It's not hard to see which one we must choose. Worldly sorrow brings death. And we see so much worldly sorrow, don't we? So much suffering, so much heartache, so many broken relationships. Sometimes it's really hard when Mary and I are just sitting in a restaurant to, to, to pick up the negative vibes coming from other tables, the couples that won't even speak to one another, or if they are speaking, are uh, harsh with each other. Uh, that's just one example. There's too many examples, and you don't need any examples. You know, you know what I'm talking about. There's so much suffering in the world, beside the obvious suffering that we all know about now because of the tragic cruelty that our brothers and sisters are suffering in the Middle East. There's a suffering in the so-called materialist utopia of America that in some ways may be on a certain level worse than the suffering of the suffering church. Why? Because the suffering church, have, they've made their mind up. They have lifted up the banner of the cross and they're willing to die under the cross. And because of that, they're already more alive than sadly many so-called American Christians who live in a, a, a kind of death all the time because they're alive to their flesh and they're dead to God. Whereas the suffering church is alive to God and dead to their flesh. And because of that, they live in a freedom that George MacDonald describes like this. The end result of dying to yourself on this level will be that you become so possessed, so enlarged by the indwelling God who is its deeper, deepest self, that there will be no longer any need for enforced denial. It will have learned to receive with thankfulness, to demand nothing, to turn no more upon its own center or think any more to minister to its own good. God's eternal denial of himself revealed in Christ who for our sakes in the flesh took up his cross daily, will have been developed in that man or woman. His eternal rejoicing will be in God and in his brothers and sisters, before whom he would cast himself gladly as a carpet for them to walk on, a footstool for their rest, or a stair for them to climb on. There's no joy belonging to human nature as God made it that shall not be increased a hundredfold to the person who gives up himself. 
however it may seem that he is yielding the very essence of his life. I try not to go too often into my own story. I don't know what the proper balance is between just preaching the gospel and sharing the truth of God and giving your own testimony. Jesus said we testify what we've seen and heard. We overcome the devil by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom the Lord has redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. So I guess I'm on safe ground when I talk about myself if my motive is not to just get focused on myself, but to maybe give you something to draw from that I've I've been able to to bring to you. But it's it's hard for people to comprehend when I tell some of my story how I could love God as much as I seemed to and yet have so much brokenness and secret sin in my life. And I got to admit, it bothers me too when I consider it. But it doesn't bother me very much because I've been around now long enough and dealt with enough people to know we're we're all pretty messed up. It's just a matter of who's more honest uh, in most cases. There are some people who've really lived exemplary lives and don't have a lot of secret baggage, and I'm grateful for those people. And uh, they're not in any degree less precious uh, in their testimony than someone who's got a terrible story to tell and talk about all the terrible things God had to deliver people out of. I'm, I'm sometimes even more moved and blessed by people who don't have to talk about the terrible childhood or the terrible immorality or addiction or whatever. But having said all that, God salvaged me, saved me, filled me with his spirit, and then went to work on my insides and went to work on my relationships and my imagination and my memories and my appetites and my desires and my uh, pride and my ego and my why? Because God hates for me to have a good time or hates for me to have uh, any ambition or hates for me to have any goals in life? Well, certainly not. Because he wants me uh, to have those goals and have those righteous ambitions uh, to be motivated by the right things so that the trajectory of my life will reach its goal instead of being off target and off center and go off into the dark. And so, uh, like one poet said one time, disappointment, his appointment. Many, many deep disappointments in the first 30 plus years of my life. Uh, Many of the things that most young people, especially young Christians, would have considered the goal of life. Uh, I had them right in my hands and they would have destroyed me. They would have ruined me. And God in his great mercy rescued me from success. And I, I think I've, I've quoted this in maybe the previous session, but I want to quote it again because I really want people to, to get it. I'll never forget getting into the, uh, the van with a friend of mine. We're about to go eat catfish or something. And uh, he stuck a, then it was a cassette stuck a cassette in the in the player. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me immediately. He said, pay attention to this song. And it was Barry McGuire singing, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, leaving me none the wiser for all she had to say. But I walked a mile with sorrow. Never a word, said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Not the sorrow of the world which brings death, but the sorrow of the Lord. Godly sorrow that brings life. The Holy Spirit spoke to me that night, 1976. I was 22 years old. And he said, if you will embrace the message of this song, I will carry you through the necessary sorrows to a life worth living. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but 
I said, this is all taking place between uh, our house and the catfish village. Just a few minutes. Eternal things can happen in a few seconds in a very non-religious atmosphere, thank God. And I whispered back to Jesus, I, I want to, I'll go with you wherever you take me, as long as you're there, as long as you're with me. I want what you want. And I said it trembling. I said it a little frightened. But I, I resent it when I hear people say, be careful what you pray. God may, God may give it to you. I don't like that. My father is not a, a trickster. He's not looking for an excuse to hurt me. Everything he did for me in those days, just like now, everything he did for me then, everything he does for me now is for my good and and uh, out of his love and wisdom. And so um, he took me through that long, long, difficult process. And uh, I can tell you I came to the end of it. That That particular period of my life, which lasted two decades, uh, was a long, difficult process, almost two de- two decades. But he who has begun a good work in me finished it. Then he began to work on some other stuff that I won't talk about now. Are you willing to go there with him? Some of you have been ahead of me on this road for years. You don't need me to give you any signposts. I need to learn from you. You don't need to learn from me. But others of you are still wrestling with your old life, wrestling with old appetites, old desires. You say, well, like one young man said to me, I don't I don't know how to change. I mean, what I hear you saying is, if I'll change, then God will bless me. No, what I'm saying is, if you recognize you can't change and you're desperate enough about it to cry out to him to do the work in you you can't do for yourself, you will begin to find Grace being given to you that you can begin to do what you couldn't do before. And you begin to obey him in areas where previously you just became passive and self-indulgent and self-excusing. Now if you keep putting yourself under the kind of preaching that is so popular in some circles today, where God just is really, he's a good, he's a good uh, a coach. He's a life coach. And he just wants you to do better and better and polish your flesh up and learn to be grade A flesh. So that you look good, smell good, seem to be good, but the core in you is never brought to the cross. You don't pass through the death of the cross and come out on the other side in resurrection life. Look, you're still going to heaven. But there's a whole lot of hell for you between here and heaven. And when you get to heaven, according to the scriptures, you may find that everything you thought you were bringing with you is just wood, hay, and stubble. And you will be saved. But as Paul says in the Phillips translation, you'll be saved as a man who barely escaped a fire. That's not necessary for hellfire to be uh, what licks your steps. Some of you, uh, you you give God rulership over everything in your life, you say, except the one area that is most in need of his protection, your relationships, particularly your romantic relationships, particularly your sexuality. Oh, you'll give God anything but that. And that is the one area that wreaks more havoc, more heartache, more destruction, in people's lives than any single area, and it's the one area we stupidly choose to keep for ourselves. Give it up. Give it to God. Give yourself to God and tell Him you trust Him for the things in your life that you care for and that you hope for. Well, Father, as we come to the close of this hour together, I pray for every man and woman and boy and girl that might be listening to this message. I pray that they will become so attracted to the life that emerges out of the tomb, the resurrection life that has come through the cross, 
that they would never trade that for any worldly baubles or playthings or temporary pleasures, even if they're big temporary pleasures, that we would become people of the cross, that we would be people who have already died to ourselves. So we're not afraid what man can do to us. We are fully free to live because we have died. And now we live. In Jesus' name, we thank you, Father. Amen.